everybody? Glad to be with you. I just, you know, want to remind you and invite you um, in this season uh, to be invitational. We've got great opportunities coming up for families and another opportunity for generosity with the giving tree. But, you know, I really hope in this season what can mark us as a church community is that spirit of invitation. And I got my hair cut uh, yesterday. I'm, I'm not meaning to uh, call attention to my haircut, uh, but I was talking to the barber and I asked him, hey man, are you part of a church or, you know, what's been your church experience? And, and he said, no, I'm not a part of one right now. And in fact, he said, um, there's some people who live on my street who are actually part of a church. I know that there's a couple churches that I know these folks are a part of, but I just don't feel like I belong there. I'm like not part of their demographic. And he specifically said they're like hipster churches, so he doesn't have a place there. And I thought that was kind of funny, but um, I just want to reaffirm that like you are welcome here no matter what demographic you represent and that we are not looking to reach a particular demographic in Huntington Beach. We want to reach the people of Huntington Beach. It's not like we're looking for 30-year-olds. It's not like we're looking for married couples with kids or, you know, 80-year-olds or 8-year-olds. We're looking for people. And we're going to be better for having the diversity of age, the diversity of backgrounds. What you look like does not matter to me. I don't care what culture you're from. We're better if more cultures in this city are represented in this community that's coming together, lifting up the one name of Jesus. And so I just want you to know, if you're here, you're invited. You're, you're welcome here. And I hope that we can be the same presence out in our community. Remember, this is a season where some of us, we got a good thing going. You know, we look back at Thanksgiving, we had a full room and everybody was very functional and it was just lovely. And it's very easy for us to just kind of soak up that blessing for ourselves. And then there's others, this is the worst season imaginable because it reminds them of everything they don't have all the time. And here one group of people can be an answer for another group of people, but they've got to open up that blessing that's theirs to be enjoyed by other people. And I just believe we can be that presence. We can be that presence in our neighborhoods. We can be that presence in this season. And, and people are looking for it. And people will even take you up on your invite to come to church. You think, oh, that person will never come to church. They will. They'll say yes. So many people will say yes if we have that open, invitational, and generous spirit. So can we live into that? I mean, any, any day can be a day of ministry when you bring someone else along, when you invite someone in. And it's not just on Sundays. It's going to be our whole life in this season. Okay, now having said that, and having addressed my haircut yesterday that made me very sad, uh, let's open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I can move on. Hopefully you can move on. Raise your hand if you need a Bible, and you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And let me tell you, this was just made for the week we just came off of, Thanksgiving. You won't believe how this responds to what we were just going through and what we're about to go through in this next season. It's a little bit of a downer, but it's a downer in a good way. It's a downer that's going to bring us up, okay? I'll, I'll prove that by the end. It's sort of like last week. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we were invited to evaluate our words, to consider if our lives are in alignment with our intentions, what's going on in our actual heart, you know? We can make a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise inside our hearts, a lot of chatter. We can make a lot of noise with our mouths, right? But is there substance to what we say, to what goes on both internally and externally with our mouths? As people of the faith, we were invited to listen more, say less, 
and follow through. Follow through on what we hear from God. Now that stung a little bit. That message stung. I mean, I said by the end, the message I got from God is that I'm supposed to be the principal shutter-upper. Okay, not the most pleasant description, right? But that's what happens when we get into God's Word and it's candid about what's going on in our lives and we start to see things revealed. If you want to make this time an intellectual or purely religious exercise, you don't have to get into any of that. It doesn't have to be uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be revealing. But when you apply yourself and you want to hear for you what God is speaking through His Word, man, it, it is uncomfortable at times. It is revealing. It stings. It's sort of like if you were walking around with your you know, journal, and you had in this journal all your inmost thoughts, you know, the most intimate thoughts of your heart and your mind, and, and you misplaced it. I mean, how uncomfortable would that be to feel that, man, it's floating out there. Anyone could just find it and open it up and see what's really going on in your life. God has that journal all the time on all of us. Maybe you don't even have a physical journal, but He's always capable of seeing. He can always look into our inmost thoughts, what's really going on in us. And when he reveals it back to us, man, it's hard to look at some of that stuff. But maybe those uncomfortable things, maybe those challenging things like the message last week, that's actually the gateway to growth and a depth to things of substance and significance in our life. I think we'll see that. That's a preview of what we'll see here as we read chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, these first 12 verses. Let's read together. It'll also be on the screens. Verse 1, a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. I mean, I was right about this whole perfect timing thing, right? Ecclesiastes 7, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, and we all just feasted for a whole week? Could you have timed this better? And I mean, it gets a little hard to metabolize what he's saying, right? It starts off fine. Verse 1, I think we're fine. You know, there's all these comparisons going on. This is better than that, right? And a good name, he says in verse 1, is better than fine perfume and and guys, that was really saying something in the ancient world. I mean, the Bible isn't scratch and sniff. But if you could scratch and sniff, you know, the ancient world, I bet it didn't smell too good. No modern sanitation, not really any running water, you know, no soaps like we have today among the commoners, you know, a lot of livestock everywhere. 
I'm sure a fine perfume was worth its weight in gold in the ancient world, and not just because it took so much to manufacture it, but because of its utility, because it was needed. The old world stunk. But better still, he says, is a good name, which represents one's character, the substance of who they are, their soul. It's called good. It's more pleasant. It's more aromatic. It's more luxurious than the finest things in life that the eyes can see, that the ears can hear that the tongue could taste, that the nose could smell. And, and again, that's all quite fine. I think, well, oh, that's a very nice word there in verse 1, the first half at least. But in the second half, the teacher uses that statement about a good name as a springboard to declare that the day of death is better than the day of birth. And I think you've already lost us at this point, right? Really? The ICU, visiting that is better than visiting the maternity ward? If you guys had an option how you're going to spend your Sunday afternoon, are you going to choose the ICU over the maternity ward where the babies are? But it's all about substance, the depth. That's what we're digging down to. We're searching for significance in this series. And when you think about the day of birth, you know, children, we celebrate them. Yeah, child is in the world, but they haven't done anything yet. We don't even know what they're going to turn out to be. But here we are, we're so excited. Yes, you exist! Hurrah! You know? That's why the day of death is better than the day of birth, though, because the day of death is all about the substance of one's life, the way they've actually lived. It's a day where the truth of the significance of the way they lived is revealed. So also is that day a better teacher for the living. Verse 2, better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. I mean, think about this. How many people leave a, a sorority party or a fraternity party and they leave going, man, I really clarified my priorities. You know, wow, I really asked some life-changing questions after that party. Yeah, like, where did you park your car? That's the question you're asking because you can't even remember the night after you're done feasting, right? On the other hand, as painful and crushing as a funeral may be, it is the moment when people start asking big questions and start reconsidering their ways. Because as the teacher reminds us, death is the destiny of all. So we go into the experience, and yes, we're watching the photo montage, and yes, we're listening to the eulogy, but we're thinking which one of our photos are going to be in our photo montage. You know, the ones that I've looked at, I go, well, that's a nice one. I think that'll end up in the photo montage. One day I'm going to have that montage. It's going to be my picture. The eulogy, which boils someone's whole life down into a couple paragraphs. What are people going to say about me in that moment? It's the one thing that we should keep in our heads. We should take it to heart more than just the drive home. Like during the drive home, we realize that. But he says, no, let that sink in. Live like you're just coming home from the funeral. Now, keeping death in the forefront of our imagination is not what most of us would consider to be a key to good living. But neither is the next principle in verse 3. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. And at this point, we're like, what in the literal world, man, right? We're going, I am stepping off this train of Ecclesiastes 7. Is this truly supposed to be wisdom? Is this guy just a contrarian for contrarian's sake? Well, think of it this way. Back on Monday... I woke up and I decided I was going to install uh, four 
uh, windows on the front of my house, four large windows. And I'd already ordered them. They were sitting in the garage. I said, today's a good day. The Santa Anas are blowing. This is a perfect day to, you know, do construction. That day, it was just insanely windy and hot and dry. Yeah, that's the day I woke up and said, I think it's the day to do this. And my wife gave me the approval, so I spent several hours removing these four massive windows on the front of the house. And I took off all the siding because they'd been installed wrong initially, and it was all rotted out, so I was going to replace all that too. And here I go, I, I pull them all out, and as I'm pulling them out, they explode. Glass is all over me, glass is all over the roof, blows into the house too. So it was a great morning. And uh, after three hours, basically, of cleaning all that up, I finally have the openings there set, and I've got it all, you know, flashed and everything. And man, I go to just measure one last time. Let's just measure those windows one last time. You, you feel where I'm going? <laughs> and although all the windows I pulled out of the house were the same size, the openings for the windows were not all the same size for some inexplicable reason. And the windows that I'd ordered, they manufactured an eighth of an inch too wide. The sticker was right there with the proper size, but you'd get the tape measure out, and that's an eighth of an inch wider. Now, that may not seem like much, but when you can't fit the window in the opening, an eighth of an inch is a lot of inches, okay? So I sat there for a while. Let me tell you, I was frustrated. In the words of the great teacher of Ecclesiastes, I had a sad face for a while, okay? And, you know, it was a little bit of time before I finally, you know, regrouped and went a little deeper into the project and pulled back some of the flashing and saw that it had been shimmed in the past, the last time windows were installed improperly, unevenly from one side to the other, and I could rip it off and I could put it back on. And before you know it, by the end of the day, the windows were in, and I even was a part of Friendsgiving in the night. It was amazing. But let me tell you something. As I was standing out there finishing out the day, a young man, my neighbor, came by. He said, how'd you learn to do that? Did you watch a lot of YouTube? I said, no, that's the result of 13 years of frustration, 13 years of sad faces, because that's when you learn. Isn't that when you learn? Isn't it through hardship? Isn't it through adversity? If I go paint a wall today, I don't learn anything. Sit there and paint the wall, da, 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 da. that doesn't grow any skills. I don't walk away having been gratified through that experience. I got to get frustrated i got to get sad, and then I grow, and then I learn something. That is the same thing in our lives. That's the same thing that we grow through. It's through the pressure. In the world's view, there is nothing redemptive in frustration and sadness, but in God's hands, those things that bring us to a place of weakness and humility, they can be used powerfully to teach us lessons that yield us more happiness than this world's endless, cheap thrills. And that's just it. This chapter is all about instruction and growth, depth, death and funerals and frustration and sadness. These are able to preach a good message to the heart that is open to hear it. So also the corrections of a wise person better for us than the songs of pop stars, translation fools, in our modern world. Let's be honest, though, being told, like it says here, that you're doing something wrong, that's the last thing any of us wants to hear. I hate being told I'm doing something wrong, especially by somebody who's right. You know, anytime you hear, hey, you should be doing this different, it's like, it's like nails on the chalkboard. 
It's like a fork on the plate. If I just think about a fork on a plate, I can hear it right now. That's how it feels when someone speaks to you and corrects you and tells you you're doing something wrong. It's like sandpaper on the soul. Now, I've been working with some sandpaper too, all right? This is my second carpentry analogy this morning. Second of three. There's another one coming, just to let you know. I've been doing some sand. I've been making these floating shelves, and it's amazing what you can do with sandpaper. You know, I'm just sanding these shelves to make them smooth and make for a good surface for some stain, right? But if you use finer and finer and finer grits of sandpaper on a piece of wood, you can make it gleam. You can make it reflect. You can make it shine through friction, through abrasion. And that's the same thing that can happen with our soul. You know, the words of the wise that are corrective, that are a rebuke, man, if you receive that, man, it abrades, it hurts. But when you receive that, that's the process through which your soul begins to gleam with some glory. God can do something with that. God does do that. He does rebuke us and correct us. And when we receive it, man, there's something that comes out, a better product from our lives. A fool's laughter, on the other hand, the person who's just having a good time all the time, verse 6, that has no use. What lesson did you ever learn from a fool's laughter? Burns up like kindling. All that laughter, it's here and gone, here and gone. It doesn't live on in our lives. Now, verse 7 and on, it feels like a shift in tone from, you know, better is this versus this, better is this versus that, when it gets into this whole extortion and bribe thing, but... Let me tell you something. Verse 7 actually continues this theme of finding growth and wisdom and depth in unexpected places, which is what we've been talking about so far. Let's see what the teacher says. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, how does this fit with the theme that I just said about finding wisdom and growth and depth in all these unexpected places? Well, let's break down what's happening here in verse 7. Here you have this wise person. Somebody who's headed for death with a good name. Somebody whose funeral is going to preach a good word to everyone who hears it. But then, somewhere along the line, someone dangles something in front of that person that they want, and they sell themselves and their character and their name to get it. What we conclude is that sometimes the worst thing for our soul is to actually get what we want. Better would it have been for the sake of this man's soul, for him to not get it and yet keep his good name. Isn't that interesting? Man, it makes me reflect on my own life. Like, how lucky am I that I didn't get all the things I wanted when I wanted them? You know how many things I've wished for, desires I've had? Maybe it's the best thing for me that a lot of those desires were never fulfilled. If they were all fulfilled, all the things I've ever wanted, all the things I've been searching for and striving for, if I had received those things, think about your own life. What a mess. What a mess my life would have been. You know, it reminds me of this wise prayer from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. In Orange County, only half of that prayer is ever prayed. God, don't make me poor. I don't want to have to steal. The other half of that, don't make me rich. Who's prayed that one? You know, people are praying 
so that they can get rich, right? So that they can have more. And that's the message of Orange County, the place that we live. Oh, man, you're only going to be happy until you get more. Truth is, we might only stay godly if we get less. Let's be honest, though. The prospect of not getting more or getting what we want is about as appealing as finishing a project to the very end. In verse 8, we're told the end of the matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. I've had to learn this concept that the end of the matter is better than its beginning. I've had to learn it in a variety of ways. But the first time I learned this lesson was through very unspiritual circumstances. This is my third carpentry analogy. Okay, it's my last, I think. I, um, I have this very visionary and restorative spirit. Um, you know, I think it's born out of my childhood. My childhood was, was a little bit limited, and so I had a wild imagination. And I think my imagination can get ahead of me. It can get me into a lot of trouble because I, I can see the possibilities of what could be. And a weakness of mine uh, as a Christian is that I'm a bit of a materialist because if I see an old motorcycle or I see an old car or I see you know, an old house or an old sailboat, I say, ooh, what could be? What could be? You could do this with that. You could do this with that, right? And oh, man, this really went haywire. This, this restorative, visionary spirit, this starting a new project spirit really went haywire when I bought this 1970 sailboat. And I looked at it, I said, oh, this interior is so outdated. It's very uncomfortable. It's 40, 50 years old. How about I remove it and rebuild it? And so I immediately, in that fit of passion, this newness, this vision, took a sawzall to the entire interior. And when I stepped back and surveyed the work of my hands, I realized I had made an enormous amount of work for myself, right? And I'd inhaled copious amounts of fiberglass dust that are going to take years off my life. But it was not fun anymore. I looked at that and I said, oh man, what have I done to myself? And out on that dock, I labored. I labored for months and months and months on a boat I would barely sail. And I wasted a lot of time that I could have invested in meaningful relationships. And I didn't enjoy one lick of that toil like the writer of Ecclesiastes recommends. I hated every second of it. But God did one redemptive thing through that wasted time. He brought me from being a starter to a finisher. He made me a finisher on that project because I wanted to quit a thousand times. I kid you not. I had no more of that new fresh energy Nothing was new and novel about it. I was not in my flow, my zone. I didn't have any more vision. I just wanted to quit, and I didn't stop. And I finished it, and I became a finisher. That's something I walked away with. Now I look at the community of branches, and I want to finish it. Not meaning I want to kill it and end it. Meaning I want to complete my contribution to this community. You know, I started when I was 23, I'm 36 now. I have never gone on any interviews. I've never looked at another job anywhere else. Because, look, I go somewhere new. I preach my 10 best sermons. Everyone's pumped up. I'm pumped up. And then it's just me after 10 weeks. And then we actually got to do life together. We're already past that point. We're past the honeymoon period. Now we get to actually do something. 
We get to take it to its end. And I'm not saying I want to stand here when I'm 70. I better not be here when I'm 70. I better have completed a little bit of my role before that time. But I'm saying I want to finish it. You know, that's the same thing for you. You can move from church community to church community. It's new, it's new, it's new, it's new, it's new. And you never make anything of it. You just keep riding on that high of the next experience, the next experience, the next experience. But it doesn't turn into anything meaningful, lasting. There's nothing you got to work through in that experience. You can just move from preference to preference to preference. With Serve City, the vision for church collaboration and, you know, releasing Christians to serve in the city. Man, a lot of enthusiasm when it started. Churches are involved. Then you get a year in, you get two years in, and everything starts to kind of shift a little bit. I want to finish it. I got vision. I got excitement for the next, not five years, not a year, not a season, 50 years of vision. And that's phase one. And I want to take it through to the finish line. With my marriage, I want to finish it. Not that I want to end it. I want to complete my role in it. Tomorrow I celebrate 13 years of marriage. I'm just getting started. I'm just getting started. I really am. I have a lot of lessons I could share with you about. I'm just learning now. But I want to finish it. My role as a father, I want to take it to completion. At the beginning of a matter, everyone's excited. When something's starting, everyone is there. Remember I was helping facilitate daily prayer at my high school and the first day of the year, 150 students are there for daily prayer before school started. And man, revival's going to happen. Transformation is going to come to this high school campus. Last week of the year, 15. 15. But man, that last week of the year is better than the first week of the year. Enthusiasm for the novel and the new usually means nothing ever gets done. But patience moves us to the finish line. And the lasting gifts are reserved for those who last. In verse 9, we have an example of someone without patience, one who is easily provoked in anger. It's a classic hallmark of fools, so the teacher says. You and I can think of anger like the emotional eject button. Like, here you are, you're at the helm of yourself. You're flying the plane. Your hands are on the controls, and then something tees you off, something sets you off. You click into that other mode of anger, and man, you just pulled the emotional eject lever, woo! And you went from having hands on the control, being able to direct where you're going, to now you're just in free fall. Let's see where you land after 15 minutes, right? We've all been there. We've all been, we've felt it, we've seen someone else feel it. If you want to suggest to them next time you're seeing them in that place that they've just pulled the emotional eject lever and they're in free fall, you can add some time to their free fall. They'll continue to fall even longer. I mean, That'll just make them angrier, right? But you see, a quickly provoked person is someone who has no tolerance for life's difficulties. They have a paper-thin emotional reserve. They appear very strong because they're very loud and reactive, but they're actually the weakest of all because they cannot handle, they cannot tolerate when things don't go their way or people don't see things the way they see them. A wise person isn't tempted to jump to something new for fresh energy, and they're not tempted to jump to anger when provoked. And then finally, in verse 10, the wise person also doesn't spend their time looking back. They don't ask, why were the old days better than these? You know, reminisce. Here at Branches, you know, we've been around long enough that there's some reminiscing that can go on. There's some uh, talk of the glory days. Remember when, X, Y, Z, remember when you used to da-da-da, you know, 
And I, and I listen to this kind of stuff, and I always think, especially when people talk about the glory days, they link it to our early days, I always think, man, those were the hardest, most awful of the days for me. But you loved the, what it yielded for you, right, man? Some of this talk about the past is just pure fantasy. But in general, the wishing for something that was is simply a symptom of a dissatisfaction in the present. And the more time you spend thinking about that rosy reinterpretation of the past, the more yesterday is going to look great at the expense of today, the day that you're actually living. It's the inverse problem of the natural energy produced at the beginning of something with vision. One person trades the quality of today, the life they're actually living, for this vision of a future new thing that will never really be how they think it's going to be. And another person trades the quality of today looking back at the memory of something that never really was the way they remember it now. The teacher recommends we just not reminisce in that way. There's no wisdom found those places. Man, what a rich chapter here, chapter 7. So many things to cause us to go deep, to cause us to think differently about our experiences in life. How do I sum this up? There's no way I can sum this up and boil this back. I don't want to. I hope that you could go away after today and you read through Ecclesiastes 7 again. You just sit with the Word of God and you let God speak to you out of the time that this was stirring up things in your heart. Go back. Listen for what God has to say to you. But when I walk away from it, there's some principles that I think are really clear across those 12 verses. And I want to remind us of them before we close. First of all, I want to remind us that we learn sometimes best when we face our limitations. That's what I see all through Ecclesiastes 7. I mean, you find your way in darkness when you touch a wall. And then you can orient yourself and find your way through. And life is the same way. A lot of times we discover where we are and who we are when we face a wall, when we hit a limit. People who never face those, they never mature. They never get direction. And sometimes I find it's in Christian circles the most where we don't want to have any limitations. We actually want to use the power of Jesus' name to remove everything painful from our lives. We want to use the power of Jesus to make our life all laughter and feasting and feeling good. But that doesn't make any sense. The gospel says to live is Christ. That is the way of the cross. And to die is gain. Said another way, the goal of life is not just a good time, like Orange County would tell us. The goal of life is a good name. Living into the good name of Jesus Christ. Living into that character. Living into the substance of who He is. And God can use every single aspect of our life toward that end. Sometimes he uses the limitations the most. The writer of Ecclesiastes would say, the sandpaper on your soul that makes it gleam with the glory of God is found most in hardship. Most when you encounter your limitations. And the second idea I see here linked to that one is that along with that, getting what we want isn't always for our good. I want to clarify that feeling good and having fun, those are gifts of God. So says the book of Ecclesiastes. But God doesn't do us any favors when our life is just that experience all the time. We can live a full life trying to just feel that way, good, getting what we want, to escape from growing up, 
to escape from the circumstances that we're actually living in right now, the responsibility that we have in front of us from facing those responsibilities. But that's not going to teach us anything, trying to get out of where we're at and trying to get something that we don't have. Friends, every single day that it rained, I kid you not, I prayed that God would sink that 1970 sailboat. Anytime there was a little bit of inclement weather, I said, God, fill up that boat by your power. Do not calm the storm. Increase the storm. Sink the boat. Because if you don't do it, I'm tempted to do it. And that will fix it all, right? But then I wouldn't have learned anything. You know, maybe the best thing for my character was shrinking this community during COVID. But that isn't anything I would have asked for for Christmas. So with you, maybe you're at a place in your life, you just want something new to get you out of where you are. Oh, if I just had that something new. Maybe some of you are at a place in your life, oh, you want that something old. Man, if I just had that thing in the past that I used to have. Maybe some of you just want something more. Oh, if I could just get this, then it'd all be better. And maybe the best thing for you is that God never gives you what you want. Instead, God wants to make you godly, to give you wisdom today. Wisdom is like a shelter. It's protection. Wisdom helps you not just live, but really live. It preserves the soul, life. So I want to ask that question in prayer, if you would join me in it. What lesson is God teaching you today? What wisdom is he giving to you today? Not just in Ecclesiastes 7, but in life circumstances, where you are. What lesson is he teaching you? You know, some of you are coming at this from a place of limitations and hardship. And you want to pray yourself out of it in Jesus' name. But God has you in it and sovereignly can develop you there, maybe most of all. What lesson is it that you're trying to get out of that he's getting you into to deepen you, to build up his good name in you, not just so that you'd live a good and fun life. For others of you, you're trying to escape. You know, he's trying to teach you a lesson, and you're looking at the next you're going, oh, but if I just had this new thing, then I wouldn't have to deal with these things that God wants to deepen in me. Oh, I'll just move on. Some of you are looking back. Some of you are just wanting more. Some of you, where God wants to teach you is in the place where you're provoked to anger because that's your emotional eject lever. That's when you want to escape, and you keep getting angry, and that's the place. God has a lesson there that you keep escaping from because your reserve is paper thin. Don't run away into that emotion. Come back to what God wants to teach you that you're running from. You think, oh man, my limitations as a parent, my limitations in communication with my spouse, those are the places. Oh, my loneliness and my isolation and my singleness. Right there, don't escape. God has something for you, a lesson, wisdom there, right there. Let's pray to receive it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just admit, I admit that there's so many things that I've wanted, desires I've had in my heart, and I'm so grateful you didn't give me what I wanted because my life would have been a real mess. 
And Lord, there are other things that have happened in my life that I never would have wished upon me. I never want to relive things that were challenges and hardships. And yet in your hands, those are sometimes the most clarifying moments of my life, the things where I learned the most and I was deepened and you led me into godliness. Lord, we're just looking sometimes for a laugh. We're looking for the feast and a good time, but it just dissipates. It doesn't come to anything. It doesn't build us up. It doesn't give us a life of substance, God. And so we're grateful for the limitations in life. We're grateful for the reminders of our weakness because in that frustration, in that sadness, that's where you teach us real lessons. That's when you make us godly. So Lord, would you just remind my brothers and sisters this morning the lessons you're teaching them right where they are right now in their limitations, in their hardships, what are you trying to grow them in? How are you trying to bring up the name of Jesus in their life? Lord, would you call out and identify where there are people in here escaping from the lessons you want to teach them, escaping from wisdom into pleasure. Oh, they just want to laugh. They just want to have a good time. What are they running from, Lord? Would you reveal it to them? There's some, oh, I'm going to move on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Oh, I wish I had the thing before. Oh, I wish I had more. Lord, what are they running from? Lord, the best thing you could do maybe is not to answer any of those prayers. It's just to keep them where they are and teach them what you want to teach them. What lessons are you speaking? Lord, would you speak to my brothers and sisters? And would you ask the Lord to reveal to you, what is he trying to teach you in your life? What wisdom is he giving you? What lesson? who listen and obey, would we be those who take to heart what you speak to us? You're using everything in our life, Lord. I thank you that we're not just here to have a good time. We're here, Lord, that you would bring up the good name of Jesus through our life and everything. You can use everything sovereignly in our life to bring that together. You can put all the pieces of our life together to bring about that end, Lord. Would we receive those lessons? Would we grow in you as you speak to us in Jesus' name?